listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland, Maine. Show summaries are available at doctorlisa.org. Download and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial through iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. I have to say that I thoroughly believe that the human animal is built for resilience. We just are. And there is no journey we cannot make. That yes, no matter what happens, it's still the human impulse for creating, for preserving our humanity, even in the most inhumane circumstances. I think fear drives mostly everything we do. Oftentimes, I held back because I was fearful. I wanted to plan everything out. I wanted to make sure that I minimized any potential risk. I forgot to enjoy the leap into something new. There's a certain free fall that occurs in your life, whether it's professional or personal, and rather than fear it, we should welcome it. At the beginning, the kids are usually pretty shy, which makes sense because they don't know us so well. By the end of the eight weeks, they're singing together and they're working together as a team to create music that they're going to perform for people. And you can see how proud they are of it. We feel so strongly that music is such an incredible vehicle to bring community together that we wanted to make sure that we brought music to all communities that we're able to reach. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Seabags, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Marcy Booth of Booth Financial Services, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 65, Freedom airing for the first time on December 9th, 2012, on WLOB and WPEI Radio, Portland, Maine. This Freedom Show came out of an experience I had early on in my medical career when I was the medical director for the Cumberland County Jail. It also came out of my experience working as a resident on Portland's Munjoy Hill with families of diverse economic backgrounds. In my life, growing up in suburban Portland, Yarmouth, Maine area, it wasn't a common thing to have people in your family be incarcerated. What I found when I worked on Munjoy Hill at the time, and what I found when I worked in the Cumberland County Jail, was that for many families this was indeed a rite of passage. It was part of the culture. And it's something that I thought a lot about as I was going through my early years as a physician, because I realized that it's not really about us and them, it's not really about people who have been bad and people who are good. So much of it has to do with where we're raised, how we're raised, what we have access to, and the type of resilience that we maybe are born with or maybe develop over the course of our lives. I think that when we look at freedom and how we get into situations and how we get out of them, there are many important lessons to be learned. On today's Freedom Show, we'll be speaking with author Monica Wood, former sheriff and current state representative, Mark Dion, and John Williams and Kate Beaver of 317 Maine and Yarmouth, who will be speaking about the outreach program at the Long Creek Development Center in South Portland. We hope you learn something about freedom as it relates to your life and the lives that we're describing on today's show. 
Thank you for joining us. Many people come to my medical practice seeking freedom from things that limit them, such as pain, difficulty with weight, chronic disease, relationship problems, and job transitions. One of my first suggestions for self-healing is to learn how to breathe. Considering that each of us has been breathing since we were born, we seem to forget how very easy and how important this is. Try this. Before getting out of bed in the morning, lie on your back with both hands on your abdomen. Take a deep breath in, counting to five in your head. Pause very briefly and breathe out again. Again, counting to five. When you bring the breath deeply into your body, your abdomen will rise and your hands will move toward the ceiling. Practice this for at least five minutes each day. For more help on finding freedom physically, emotionally, or spiritually, contact me, Dr. Lisa, at The Body Architect, 207-774-2196, or visit our website, doctorlisa.org. The topic of today's show is freedom, and we're going to spend time with people who represent different ways of looking at this notion, freedom, and what it means as an individual and maybe within the culture. So today we have Monica Wood, the author of Any Bitter Thing, and also When We Were the Kennedys. The way that I became interested in having Monica come and speak was because she does work with the Maine Correctional Center in Wyndham. And I appreciate your coming in to talk to us today about all the things that you do, Monica. You're very welcome. Monica, I finished When We Were the Kennedys, and I was really struck by the fact that um, I think there are so much shared culture that you are describing that so many of us in Maine have felt. Mm -hmm. This sort of mill town, Mexico, paper mill. Um, My family's from Biddeford, and, you know, I know that this culture was there for us and the Catholicism. Um, why was this important for you to write about that particular topic? Well, you know, it's funny that freedom is the topic today because writing nonfiction was a big sort of jump out of the corral for me because I am known as a novelist. I've got four novels. Everybody, my editors, my agent, my readers, everybody was expecting another novel, which I mightily tried to do and left it abandoned. I may, I probably will get back to it. But I was in a, a real trough, not just a writing trough, but a trough of despair is maybe too strong a word, but I'd had two friends had died my father-in-law died. This was all within about four months. And then, I know this sounds silly, but cat lovers will know, and also a very beloved old cat died, and that just felt like the last straw. So it's just one of those places you end up in, in life. Everybody does. It just happened that all these things seemed to be converging at once, and I didn't write for a while. I was simply not... In, in a place to do that, especially something that I was struggling with so mightily. And so I did finally what I always do when I'm in despair is I went home, but I went home metaphorically this time. I started writing about my childhood and there was something so palliative for me 
about doing that. It felt good to be back with my family. Even though I'm writing about a sad year in my family's life, it's, I was nine years old and my father dropped dead on his way to work at the Oxford Paper Company, which was the mill in town. But there was something about going back and in a way being back with my family that was extremely calming to me. And um, I just felt that I'd been drawn back into the bosom of all those things that made me who I am. And, you know, I grew up feeling cherished and special and loved. And so there was that way of getting back to that feeling again. So, but at the same time, there was something a little bold about it because I was working on nonfiction, which I had never intended to do. I thought there was zero audience for this book, starting with my agent, who is kind of the troll under the bridge. She's, you know, if you, can, you have to get past her to get anywhere else. She's wonderful. We've been together for a long time, but, you know, we have our moments. Um, so it was, you know, talk about freedom. I felt like I kind of was busting out of a little box that I'd been in for quite a while. Well, I would think that it would be very different because I've read all of your works of fiction, and that's something that you're creative. You're creating. It's yes. something that you're pulling together out of somewhere, your mm -hmm. mind and things around you. Mm -hmm. But this is something that has to come from within you, the nonfiction, the, the autobiographical mm -hmm. aspect. And you're talking about really difficult times. I mean, mm -hmm. your father died, and then you eventually talk about the fact that your mother died. Mm -hmm. And you, you talk about this sort of re, um, rejiggering of the family, yes. trying to understand itself better after mm -hmm. sort of what, it, what was known to be ceased to exist anymore. Mm -hmm. So what did that bring up for you as you, were, as you were writing? You know, people ask me, was it hard to write? Was it, did you cry all the way through? And I honestly, I never shed a tear. It was probably the most joyful writing I have ever done. And I, I probably because what I'm writing about is a transformation of a family. It was, I cannot even possibly overestimate the blow dad's death was to all of us. And yet we ended up being this very traditional mill family. It just like every other family in town, completely connected to the mill through dad's work and then he's gone. And so we're something else. We don't really know what. A family of women, four daughters, and my brother was um, married with children of his own at that point. So here's my mother and these four girls. And in the last scene of the book, before the epilogue, I have my sister Anne, who's at the time a 21-year-old school teacher. And then there's the three little girls. There's my sister Betty, who's mentally disabled. She's 12. I'm nine at the time, and my sister Kathy is eight. And the big thing is Anne getting her driver's license so we can finally get Dad's car going. This is a year and a half <laughs> later. Um, and she finally gets her license, and we do. Back then, it was just a big deal. And we all piled into the car, and we're driving around town and tooting the horn at this one and that one. And it's sort of a culmination of all the things that you've seen in the town and in the story. But at the end, she pulls into the driveway, and we're singing the car trip song. We had this song we always sang when we were in the car. And the last line is, there is no journey we cannot make this way. In other words, here we are now as this other kind of family, and we're going to be OK. Even though the reader knows in not too many years my mother will also die, but it prepares them, 
even though that's not part of the story, they know we're going to be okay with that too because we have become this very tight, close family of girls that can manage anything. And some of the way that your family was able to be okay was through this national tragedy that occurred not Mm -hmm. too long after your father died. Yes, the Kennedy assassination was resonated very deeply in my family. My mother at first, and this I picked up on even as a nine-year-old child, my sister Kathy teases me. She says, you know, you were, you were the one who was always listening to what people weren't saying, the things nobody else noticed. And I thought, you know, that's pretty much the definition of a, a child who grows up to be a writer. I, every writer I know had that kind of childhood, kind of anxious, always looking between the lines, wondering, what do they mean by that? So what I picked up from my mother is that she was ashamed to be a widow. So when the tragedy, the national tragedy happened, we have Jackie Kennedy, the most beautiful, glamorous woman on the face of the earth, who has suffered exactly the same tragedy my mother suffered a few months earlier than that. And I could see how watching the televised grace of Jackie Kennedy showing the whole world that this kind of sorrow can be, A, can be born and can be beautiful. It elevated my mother's status in her own heart, I think. And as a result, mine too, I was mortified to be fatherless, absolutely mortified. And I don't think that's an uncommon feeling. But the idea that Caroline Kennedy also had this exact same thing happen, it was just a funny sort of comforting idea that we weren't that God hadn't kind of picked us out for this, that these things happen to all kinds of families, including of all families, the Kennedy family. And this idea of loss uh, carried through as a theme because you talk about the mill Mm -hmm. and people losing their jobs and things getting reconfigured there and the sense of some enormous institution that had always been there also having to be restructured. Mm Right. The book really has three threads and and three themes. And one is this family that's going through this enormous transition. The nation also, of course, is going through an enormous transition. And also the American manufacturing in the form of the Oxford Paper Company is also going through a transition because that same year, the towns were bracing for a protracted labor strike that would change the relationship between the mill and the town forevermore. So that's what's happening in the book, these three institutions on the cusp of enormous change. And you also describe um, the shoe manufacturing business and sort of how (laughs) things are pulled together and how things used to be so Mm hands-on at that time in Maine history. Yes, we used to. We had a Next to our neighbor, Mrs. Gagnon, who we all had a huge crush on, she was absolutely gorgeous. She had this beautiful auburn hair rippling down her back. Didn't really look like the other mothers. She wore kind of that French eyeliner, you know, back then. And just, she was a lovely woman. And she used to take in piecework from the shoe, we call them the shoe shops, the shoe factories from Bitterford, you know exactly what I mean. Um, And uh, she had three little girls the same age as our youngest three. And my sister Kathy and I used to go over there and help Mrs. Gagnon and her three daughters sew shoes. So she'd get, there was a pickup drop-off in Rumford on Waldo Street, and she'd come home once a week with two giant cartons with uppers and lowers. They were just loose flaps of leather. And she taught us how to sew the toe end of the shoe with the rawhide pie crust stitch. 
and we would help her do that. It was my first skill, my first job. And I was very, very proud of it because it wasn't the kind of thing that you said, oh, well, let's let the kids try it. You had to do it correctly or she didn't get paid for the work. So it was a very interesting thing. And very shortly thereafter, even that went away. The shoe, the shoe industry was kind of on its last legs already at that point. And by the end of the decade, it was virtually gone. This was a booming industry that within 10 years disappeared entirely. Do you think that there's some larger lesson that could be learned from the experiences that you describe in the book? I mean, obviously, our country has been going through mm-hmm. um, economic reconfigurations over the last mm-hmm. several years. And some people are feeling hopeless, as if it's never going to end, as if nothing's going to change, as if everything that they've ever known has been sort of thrown out the window. Mm-hmm. And yet you went through this yourself as an individual, as a family, as a town. What lessons do you think can be learned from your experience that possibly could be extrapolated to the experience of those who are listening? Well, I don't know about lessons. I'm not a good lesson person, but I have to say that I thoroughly believe that the human animal is built for resilience. We just are. And there is no journey we cannot make, no matter what befalls us. And we see it all the time. You know, the quote, tragedy that I suffered as a child is nothing compared to the tragedies that children in, say, Iraq have been suffering over the last 10 years. And yet they too, I assume, have some resilience, some way to overcome what is befalling them right now. And the other thing is the idea of the creative impulse as a way of um, not curing any of this stuff, but retaining your humanity in the face of something that may feel as if it's about to destroy you. And you think of the, in the Holocaust after, when they went and visited the the, um, camps, that they found poems rolled up in papers stuffed into pipes. And I, I find those stories like that, not only hair raising, but also unbelievably comforting that yes, no matter what happens, it's still the human impulse for creating, for preserving our humanity, even in the most inhumane circumstances. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. What makes a person feel enslaved by their finances? I guess that depends on your relationship to money. If you are prone to react and manage your money based on instincts, then freedom might be found by just sitting down with a pen and paper and mapping out a plan. If you are prone to overwork and see your job as a reason for living, then maybe you need to create enough savings to lower your stress and redirect it toward a healthy pursuit outside of work. If you are prone to speculate instead of invest or think that leverage is supposed to help you do more instead of less, then maybe freedom will be delivered in the form of a crisis or health event. If you want to talk about how to be free from the worries of a consumer-driven culture, then come and talk to us about how to preserve, manage, and pursue opportunity 
to enjoy life by using your money. Call Shepherd Financial at 847-4032 and let us help you evolve with your money. Shepherd Financial, securities and advisory offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA SIPC. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individualized care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. As far as humanity is concerned, you've chosen to work with a group that really is pretty down on its luck, and this was profiled in a Maine Magazine story not so long ago. Um, this is work you do through the Maine Correctional Center in Wyndham. Mm-hmm. Why were you drawn to that? Oh my gosh, Lisa, this is, I honestly can't answer it except to say that I started out, I was asked to visit a book group that a volunteer was running at the Maine Correctional Center, and this is in the women's unit. There are about 80 women in the unit out of a prison that holds you know, about 600 inmates. Most of them are male. And they were reading one of my books, Ernie's Ark. And I went into the, she called me through, or emailed me or something, and asked if I would come and visit their group. And I said, sure. Went over, walked in, and the second I walked in that room, there were 12 women in the group, all in their blue you know, prison garb, and this volunteer. And the second I walked in there, I something just came over me. I can't explain it. I've never had this experience about anything, including writing, in my life. But I thought, I completely belong here, and I have to come back. So I had a wonderful two hours. It was the best book group I've ever visited. They, it was all about the book and the characters and the stories, and very insightful and interesting and funny. And so I left, and I immediately wrote up a proposal for something. I brought it over to the Maine Humanities Council, and they gave me money to buy books. And I started this program. It's called Meet the Authors. And I kind of dragooned three of my write, women writer friends into doing this with me, Hannah Holmes, uh, who's a science writer, and my friend Amy McDonald, who writes for children. And that first time, and it was Betsy Scholl, who at the time was our poet laureate. She's a poet. And I asked them if they would do this with me. And so the format is it's 12 weeks. I'm there every week. And we talk about the writing of the writer who is about to come in and visit. So we have two sessions. We read the book, talk about the book, and then the writer comes in for a Q&A and a little, like a mini workshop on that type of writing. So Hannah had them doing close personal observation of human beings as basically an animal species, which was hilarious to say the least, because they're, you know, these are caged animals, really, uh, who have territory issues and all kinds of stuff like that. So her work really resonated with them very much. And she's also hilariously funny, so they appreciated her. And also has no, when I choose people for this, I have to think in terms of three things. One is, will their writing 
resonate with the women. And I want to pick somebody who has very few barriers, you know, very, very open people, and also somebody with not even a whiff of noblesse oblige. You know, people who are just there to meet some great gals and have some fun and do a little teaching and some back and forth. So it's worked out really, really well. I had never done anything like it before. I didn't know whether it was going to work. And I have to say that I made very few adjustments the, the second time around. I've done it now three times, and I'm about to start a new one. And what I have found is what we do in the this is, I guess, about freedom. You know, your prison is not an easy place to live. So we're in this room, and the first thing we did, I thought this was going to be, I thought this was going to go over like a lead balloon. I thought, well, I'll just try it. And so I had us all raise our arms over our head and create a metaphorical bubble around us, and that inside this bubble, our only identity is as readers and writers. That's it. And they completely went with it. And in fact, if I forget, they remind me. And we also did, sometimes a guard would come in to do something or the education director would come in just to sit in for a little while and we would say, well, I'm sorry, you have to come inside our bubble. And they were so disarmed by it, they'd just say, uh, well, okay, <laughs> and they would do it. But it gave the women not only autonomy within this circumscribed metaphorical place we had invented, but it gave them a little bit of authority that you can't come in here unless you do this. It was very, very interesting. And the writing they've produced has been sometimes utterly astonishing. And the interest, you know, I have a friend who's a, a DA, and, you know, we obviously have very different um, views about prisoners. And what I tell him, though, is that the person that he prosecutes in court is not the person I see coming into my class. That person is now clean and sober, for one thing, and that, that's huge. A lot of these horrible crimes were committed under the influence of very bad drugs. And again, you know, those are all choices, but you know, I'm not saying it's an excuse for behavior, but it is part of the package. And so the women that I'm seeing are clean and sober, and you're a different person when you're clean and sober. You're more the person you might have been or hoped you would be before all of this happened. So it's uh, it's it's really given me a. I mean, I never thought at all about people in prison. I wasn't interested in them. I didn't give a thought to them in any way. And now I I think about them all the time. I think about them all the time. You know, if I'm having a glass of wine in the evening, I joked to them. I said, you know, I think I could do okay in prison because I actually like small spacious spaces and I like structure. They're the ones who told me, they said, you know, you'd do great in here. I said, I would do great, except I couldn't stand going without a glass of wine in the evening. That would be my worst thing. And lousy coffee. So, um, but I, I do think of them sometimes. I think, well, here I am in my house with my glass of wine and I know exactly where they are at that same time because everything is so regimented. But most of them are getting out, you know, sooner or later, some sooner, some much later. And so I think that if, if I can have any role in sending them back out there with their creativity ignited, then I think that that can't be a bad thing. 
Monica, how can people find out about the work that you're doing, about the books that you're writing and the things that you're out in the world um, contributing? Well, I have a website, monicawood.com, and I try to keep it up. I'm on Facebook, and any, anybody can friend me on Facebook if they want to see what's going on there. Um, and that's about it. I don't Twitter, tweet, whatever, at all. I just, that's all. I mean, Facebook is enough of a time suck as it is, so I try to um, keep as low a profile <laughs> as I can while still fulfilling my obligations of book promotion, etc. Well, we are so grateful to you for coming in and being part of what we're trying to do with um, encouraging people to find their own creativity and perhaps uh, use this to engage in their own freedom activities. Yes. So thank, thank you, you for coming in and talking to us today. Oh, you're welcome. I really enjoyed myself, Lisa. Thanks. We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. The Body Architect was founded on the belief that mindful exercise improves the health of the mind, body, and spirit. Housed in an open, light-filled space in Portland, Maine, The Body Architect offers a cutting-edge fitness center, expert personal trainers, nutrition counseling, and a full class schedule. Visit thebodyarchitect.com or call 207-774-2196 and get started with The Body Architect today. And by Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine. At Orthopedic Specialists, ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree. With state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendinitis, muscle tears, ligaments, instability, and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207 781-9077. In the studio with us today, we have former Sheriff Mark Dion, who's also the current state representative from District 113 here in Maine, and um, a friend of mine from, I think, maybe about a decade back when I was working at the Cumberland County Jail, and you were the sheriff for Cumberland County. Um, You've had so many different lives before that point, and since that point, I'm Really glad that you're here today to share some of those experiences. Well, thanks for inviting me, and I hope our conversation is helpful. I, I can't imagine it wouldn't be. I mean, even when I met you, I was the medical director for the Cumberland County Jail, and I think that anybody who's never been inside a jail setting, there's just no way to completely describe it, but it's like its own little society, its own little universe with its own little set of rules, and even from a medical standpoint, its own... It's a village behind a fence. And I think a lot of the general community would like to hope they don't need to know about it, but it exists and it has consequences for the broader community in terms of how people leave that village, what state they're in, and moreover, why we sent people to live in that village for predetermined sets of time. So uh, I always thought I was the mayor of a unique community. (laughs) Well, and you've had a chance to be a member of many different unique communities. You grew up in Lewiston. Yes. And you were just saying before we got on the air, you grew up at the same time as Governor LePage in Lewiston. And Lewiston is its own little unique community. What are some of the things you learned about growing up in Lewiston? Well, growing up in Lewiston, family was central. Uh, This idea of bilingual community was core to who we were. I grew up in a Franco-American 
household, and English was seen as a secondary language. Uh, French is what we spoke at home. Uh, there was this idea there was us and the Americans. Um, there was an idea of my parents and their generation, especially their parents, that whatever was going on in Lewiston was temporary, that eventually we'd return to Canada. So we sent resources to Canada, and we had to make our annual pilgrimage there to be reminded that was home and Maine was temporary. And then by the time our generation grew up, uh, we saw ourselves as the true American generation. So I see that same parallel occurring now uh, in other communities, whether it's uh, families from North Africa or Southeast Asia who've come into Maine. Uh, there's a transition. I take, it'll take three generations. You know, you have Cambodians in America, and then you'll have Afghan Americans, and then eventually you'll have Americans who say they're of Somali descent. There's a journey there, and uh, it comes with blessing and frustration because the broader community expects that transition to be sometimes more quickly achieved than what's possible. Well, tell me about some of the friction that can take place when this journey, when you're undergoing this journey, whether you're an individual or a community. Well, I think it surfaced in the recent comments by the mayor in Lewiston, which is this idea of when do you adopt one culture and abandon another one. And uh, I, I think if you were asked, for my opinion, I would gently suggest to him that it's a melding, it's, it's transformation. His culture will never be the same, and neither will theirs. Uh, there'll be a new culture in Lewiston that will incorporate elements of both. And he should do what he can to encourage that, because I think it'll give Lewiston a better worldview of itself and others. Do you think that one of the reasons that people hold on to whatever they grew up with is um, a fear, a fear of moving into something unknown in the, in the future? I think fear is, drives mostly everything we do. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, whether it's having to do with culture, even your own individual growth, you know, if I look back on my life and I'm absolutely honest with myself, uh, oftentimes I held back because I was fearful. Um, I want to plan everything out. I want to make sure that I minimize any potential risk. And uh, I forgot to enjoy the leap into something new. Uh, there's a certain free fall that occurs in your life, whether it's professional or personal, and rather than fear it, we should welcome it. So when I go to Augusta, a lot of the conflict there is fear-based, trying to hold on to something that feels safe and comfortable, uh, this resistance to change, and being torn by the idea that some part of your brain and your heart recognizes change has to occur. It's a real struggle. So when you mention fear, I think it's one of the driving elements in how we see ourselves and how we engage others. My experience with you when I was the medical director at the county jail, and we were going through a lot of difficulty with financing the medical care for the inmates because it was expensive and probably still is expensive, and, but there was a lot of friction at that time, is that you always maintain a very um, pragmatic yet positive view I mean, it really, I always had the sense that you weren't kind of locked down in your thinking, that you were open to trying to bring people in and experience their um, thoughts. Is that part of what's enabled you to be successful? I, I think so. I mean, I think success is something I judge internally. So I feel if I can bring as many people to the issue as I can, and we all learn something from that process, then that's success. Um, and I don't try to get 
caught up in stereotypes. I mean, part of the problem with the jail was the the idea that everybody should be punished and everybody is consistently evil uh, makes it easier to say no, as opposed to saying, look, these are fellow human beings. They have needs. We have to meet those needs. We have to demonstrate the very behavior that we suspect is not existent in them. And in these 30 years dealing with, and I'll put in quotation mark, criminals, I found that bad people can do incredibly good things, and good people have done some incredibly bad things. Um, evil moves like an infection back and forth uh, across many different individuals. And I'm not so quick to judge. I think in 30 years I would look back and say, thank God I've deferred to her to judge in the final analysis. Uh, my job is to try to respect and engage. Uh, and I may learn something, and they may learn something in the process, too. So fighting or advocating for proper medical care, whether it was for physical disease or mental health, seemed to be what my duty was. It's how you define responsibility. And once you do that for yourself, you get a lot of clarity. But that's something that really bothers me, and you know from our prior lives at the jail. I mean, we're quick to build jail cells. We're not so quick to build therapeutic beds or we're really reluctant to define many of our problems as they truly are, which are public health issues and not necessarily crime issues. We want to punish. We want to believe that people that are in the grips of addiction have a choice. Yet if you put the timeline of an addict, there comes a point where rational decision-making went out the window. Um, it's not fun anymore. They don't want to do what they're doing, but they're absolutely compelled biologically and psychologically to do that. We don't recognize that. And I'm not sure that a jail or prison is very therapeutic in the way it approaches those problems. So if I was king of the world, for every jail cell, we need 10 beds in a hospital or medical setting. I mean, that truly looks at what's going on out there. If we want to stop crime, we need to control and provide resources for addicted individuals. It's the same with mental health. We put a lot of people that are mentally ill in jail, and we think that'll work. And you know and I know it doesn't work. It aggravates the situation, but some parts of our community feel there's been a victory there. So we need to discuss with them and, and challenge them to revisit their thinking. And again, it's fear. I'm not like that. I don't want to be like that. I want to make sure my children are not exposed to that because they may become that. You see, these are all, this is not a place that's comfortable for them either. They're as trapped as the addict. One is trapped by chemistry, the other one is trapped by their own thinking. We need to break it down on both sides. Well, my experience is that if you really dig deep, that it's more the fear that they are like that that drives them, or that they're, they are, as John McCain has said multiple times, and he has done work at Long Creek, um, and we had another interview where people were talking about, those are just the people who get caught. So. My experience with people is that it's their fear that they're just one step away from getting caught, that there's something underneath many times that they're worried that they already are manifesting. I don't disagree with that. I think we are most fearful of those individuals that display the very weakness that we have within ourselves, and there's a recognition of that. So it's we're repulsed by who we are, not necessarily who they are. Um, and that's why I'm saying it's they don't feel safe. The accuser doesn't feel safe to look in the mirror either. But damn, they want to make sure the offender does. I'm okay with that, but we need to turn the mirror on the community and start asking hard questions. 
um, and give them a way to find an answer so we do get justice. And my experience also was that there is, I would say, the vast majority of people that just made bad choices and really, you know, had bad family situations and had addictions and things going on. And there was this sliver of people that I encountered that I was truly concerned about. I really would not have ever wanted them out in the community because I, I think I did sense that there was some strange biological or psychological evil that existed, that something could turn in their brains. Um, is there room for that thinking in your paradigm? Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm a realist. Um, there is a small number of men and women out there who pose a real risk to themselves first by their decision-making and to all of us in the general community. And unfortunately, we may have to contain those individuals, and that's, that's a whole other talk and how we do that. But the vast majority of people don't fall in that category. Here's an example. A few weeks ago, I went up to the state prison to visit with the uh, men who were part of the hospice program there. And when I walked in, one of the volunteers is somebody I helped put in prison many years ago. So uh, it was like a reunion. And I saw immediately he had had a dramatic change. We would have said back then he's a sociopath, had no conscience, no feeling for others, uh, and a true predator in every sense of the word. And uh, I've helped put men like that in prison, and I felt that I'd done my job at the time, so um, I'm conscious of that. We spent some time talking, and the change that I saw is he's developed uh, a capacity now for empathy. He, by seeing dying and actually embracing the reality of our own individual mortality, he's come to appreciate what life is and how sacred it is. And... Uh, that's done more for him being in this process than the idea that he's got to do 10 or 15 years in a cage. Um, we've achieved not rehabilitation because there was no good to bring him back to because of the trajectory of his life, but we have achieved with the hospice program, I think, a transformation. So there's always hope. You see, it reinforced in me that even when I've concluded somebody is bad, you know, incorrigible, uh, that speaks to my own failing, uh, that I'm still not willing on some level to taunt the possibility that there is hope. And this program provided hope and has provided some substantial transformation for this gentleman. And all the men in this were there for heinous crimes. Um, you know, one serving a 62-year sentence. So we know the community said, yeah, you're irretrievable and we're going to put you in this box forever. But in spite of that, he has found a way to connect with humans on a level many of us will never connect with. And because of that, I think has been granted a gift that we can enjoy in terms of appreciating what life is. And he's learned that in a cage. Maybe there's a lesson there for us. It does seem very interesting that sometimes in order to find freedom, we have to be first confined. Yeah, they are free. Those men, <laughs> I mean, it's... They had some, uh, they formed a little band, that's how they uh, decompressed from dealing uh, with the sick and dying in prison, and their, their lyrics spoke to that. They, their soul is connected to something greater than those walls, uh, and we can't contain that. You can't punish that. Uh, you can't restrain it, and they know it. And I think they walk much more erect emotionally 
than when they walked into that building the first time out. And I think it's a blessing for them and for the institution. The institution could learn a lot from them. Um, we could, they, they had some uh, PhD in nursing, study them and some men who do similar work in Louisiana. And the consequence for the patients and for them were better than those we paid to do the work out in the free world. Because out in the free world, on many levels, it's just a job. And even though you're committed to the job, you go in, you're done, you go home, you shut it down for most of those types of professionals or employees. But these men live it. These are men that they're caged with. And the connection and the bond goes on forever. They will stand at the graveside at the prison farm and put them in the ground. Uh, it, it was very powerful. Um, I felt good. They made me feel good. Uh, <laughs> so I went to a place where we think evil lives to learn something that was very, very good. Well, I appreciate your spending the time talking with us today on the subject of freedom and the things that it has meant in the different iterations of your life. Um, we've been talking with former sheriff and current state representative and attorney, Mark Dion. Thank you for coming in. Thank you, Lisa, very much. We'll return to our interview after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Sea Bags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Sea Bags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind nautical-inspired pieces. Visit the Seabag store in Portland or Freeport or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. And by Booth, accounting and business management services, payroll and bookkeeping. Business is done better with Booth. Go to boothmain.com for more information. Last spring, we had on our show two very talented individuals who are connected within the community doing good work in the area of music, and we called the show Healing with Sound. Um, we were joined by John Williams of 317 Maine in Yarmouth and music therapist Kate Beaver. And we're so fortunate to have them back in the studio today to talk with us about an interesting program that came up. Well, I'm going to let you tell us a little bit about it, but the reason I knew about it was because John McCain, who is our audio guru and also a musician within the community, started teaching with this program. So thank you for coming back and joining us, John and Kate. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And the program that you're doing is with the Long Creek Youth Development Center, which has been out in the community a long time, known as something else I can't remember, but it was it was... It was always sort of more of a, we thought of it as more of a sort of a prison kind of place for children. But what we're learning more and more is that this isn't, it's, this is a stage that it doesn't necessarily have to be perpetuated. Children can get out of the system and can move out into productive lives. And you're helping them do this through music. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, no, our, our understanding is that it has been around for a long time, and um, I believe it's the only correctional facility in the state for for kids. And um, they've really gone through a transition um, in terms of how they're working with kids. And absolutely, that's that's the goal is to, to give these kids opportunities to see that there are other ways to live their lives and be productive in society. Mm -hmm. 
The facility is really structured, so it's it's kind of a good thing for them to go in and get an education in a safe space and do some sort of therapy work in addition to their learning. Well, tell me, for those who haven't listened to the interview that we had with you, Kate, which of course they're all gonna, everybody's gonna go back now and listen to the <laughs> podcast on Healing with Sound, because it was a great podcast. Um, tell us a little bit about music therapy, Kate. Give us background, and why is this helpful for kids? So music therapy is a way to use music as a, a way to heal um, in sort of an indirect way. So it addresses non-musical goals. So if you have goals of um, trying to grow as a person or regaining speech if you've been brain injured, um, or general therapy goals, just trying to sort of improve your well-being, you can do that through music. So instead of um, trying to address things verbally, you address things musically. Well, give me an example of something that you might do with somebody that okay. can help them. Um, so I'm trying to think of an example from Long Creek. One thing that we did is we would find out what kind of music the kids like, and we'd choose a song that they knew really well, and then we would teach them to play it on an instrument, but then we would change the words. So they would write their own words to that song. So even though they weren't comfortable yet just making up a song on their own, this was kind of, kind of an easy way for them to express themselves through music um, just by changing words to an already familiar song. John, why did this fall under the umbrella of 317 Maine? You offer, I know, a lot of lessons. You do group lessons. You have Henry Fest every year. But this is something where you actually take instructors, including John McCain from our radio show and others from your school, into Long Creek. Why was this an important thing to do? So we've been around for about seven or eight years now um, with our teaching facilities up in Yarmouth, and we also have a teaching facility in, um, in Portland. Um, we feel so strongly that music is such an incredible vehicle to um, bring community together that we wanted to make sure that we brought music to all communities um, that we're able to, to reach. Um, our facility up in Yarmouth, we have about 400 people that come and, and, um, and join that community and take lessons and, and participate in music. We wanted to really figure out other populations that we could serve in the greater Portland area that may not have access to music in the same way, that may not be able to um, you know, come to a, a weekly lesson uh, per se. And we were given an opportunity to go into Long Creek, um, working with the folks at Seeds of Independence, another nonprofit in the area that works with at-risk youth and um, this was about a year and a half or so ago and um, we went and talked to folks at Long Creek and the more we talked to them and the more we kind of heard what what their philosophy was we felt that there was a great possible fit between what we could bring in terms of music and community building and personal growth and what Long Creek is trying to do with um, with uh, with the kids that are there. So Seeds of Independence why why has this become a hot topic of late? I think that there are those that have have seen these kids and you know every person has their their special part um, and there are a number of kids in southern Maine and probably throughout the state I'm sure as well as throughout the country that that don't have the same opportunity and same privileges as other kids and um, the folks at Seeds of Independence um, really saw that and, and their their goal is to even if they can help one or two kids um, find a way out from the situation that they're in, that's that's their that's their hope and, and their target for doing that. I'll have to say, um, 
one of our early visits to Long Creek, we brought a couple of our musicians and we were given an opportunity to go into five different pods. They called the different units at the, at the center pods. And um, we weren't quite sure what to expect, but um, we asked the kids, did they like music? What kind of music did they want to hear? And it was very quiet. Um, most of the kids had a fairly distant look in their eye, um, not really sure why we were there or what this was all about. So we just started to, to play some tunes, and it was one of the most amazing things I've ever observed. It went from kind of a complete expressionless, almost lifeless look to full engagement, interest, and, in, and engagement. And mm -hmm. it was so powerful that it was so clear to us at that time that music really is this amazing thing that can reach people's hearts and can be a real vehicle to awakening inner self that that's what really um, made us realize that this was a great partnership and, and something that, that we wanted to do. Kate, describe what the program is actually like. Mm -hmm. So it's an eight-week program, and we have six to eight young adults join our group. And each day we try a little bit of a different kind of music. So a lot of the kids tend to like hip-hop music uh, or rock music, but we try to introduce them to some other genres, so folk or indie folk, um, classical music, jazz, just things that they might not have listened to yet. So each week we learn a little bit. And then we also try to do some improvisation activities. So the kids will choose an instrument and just kind of make something up on it. And we try to show them that that's a comfortable way to play music. They don't have to already know anything about it. Um, and then we also do songwriting. So a lot of the kids already are fairly introspective and they write poetry or they write in a journal. So we take some of their writing and we try to turn it into songs that they can later perform for people. And how many sessions have you now had? Oh gosh, three, I think. And we have three more coming up. So just last night, John McCain and I went and introduced ourselves to the kids and did the same thing you're talking about where we played for them. And it was the same result where they got really excited and interested and we sort of showed that we could just make something up on the spot, um, just improvising together. So our next session starts two weeks from today and goes for eight weeks. And are you finding that the numbers of kids who are signing up are increasing? Mm -hmm, definitely. Um, last session, we only had one to two girls each time, and this time we had almost all the girls sign up. So we might actually be doing it right in their pod. Um, there's just one female pod. So, What are the changes that you see in the children between the beginning and the end of the time that you spend with them? That's a great question. Um, at the beginning, the kids are usually pretty shy, which makes sense because they don't know us so well. Um, and they're, they're very quiet and kind of tough acting. Although you get to realize that's kind of just a front that they're putting up, but they act sort of rough and gruff and they tease each other and they, they don't really want to participate as much. But then by the end of the eight weeks, they're singing together and they're working together as a team to create music that they're going to perform for people. And you can see how proud they are of it. Last time we had some of our donors come in and some of their volunteers come in and listen to their songs that they had written. And the kids were just really excited to be doing it for them. and sort of talked about the process and talked about what their song meant to them. And there were a lot of tears in the audience. How do people find out more about the work that you're doing with the Long Creek Youth Development Center? would love to have anyone who was interested um, to learn more to come and just uh, check out 317, come by and speak to me, um, talk to Kate or John, and we'd be happy to talk about it. Um, 
uh, Long Creek is always looking for volunteers, and I think if folks out there are interested in, in learning more and perhaps volunteering, if they have an interest in music, there's there's always stuff to be done. So um, by all means, reach out to us, and, and we can put you in touch with the right people. Any parting thoughts for those who are listening about the power of music, Kate? I think it, I was thinking a little bit when you were just asking about how teachers feel about it. It really is a different sort of thing than just giving a music lesson. Um, so you have to be prepared to sort of deal with whatever is going to come up because these kids are going through a lot and it can be a really powerful thing to see the changes that come through them and what they bring out of themselves in their music making. So music is powerful to the individual but also to the person who's teaching the individual exactly. and sort of the reflection back. Right, we learn from them as well. So. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. We've been talking with John Williams of 317 Maine and music therapist Kate Beaver. I encourage all of our listeners to go back and listen to our Healing with Sound podcast to find out more about 317 Maine and also music therapy and get in touch with the people at 317 Maine about the Long Creek Youth Development Center program and the work that's being done. Thanks for coming in. Thank Thanks you. for having us. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo, and you have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast. Show number 65, Freedom, airing for the first time on December 9th, 2012. Today's guests have included author Monica Wood, former sheriff and current state representative Mark Dion, and John Williams and Kate Beaver of 317 Maine in Yarmouth, discussing the outreach program at Long Creek Development Center in South Portland. We anticipate that many of you who are listening have some experience with incarceration, whether it be an actual incarceration of yourself, a family member, or someone you know, or maybe it's a mental or emotional incarceration. We also know that people have experiences with freedom and the idea that even though you may be confined at some time in your life, physically, emotionally, or socially, there is a way out. We hope that some of our guests have provided you with insights as to how you may find your way out of your own incarceration in fact, we know that some of our guests will be able to positively impact you in this area. For more information on these guests, visit doctorlisa.org. Be sure to like our Facebook page, send us a note, and let us know what you think of our shows. Also, we hope that you'll take a moment to thank our sponsors and let them know that you heard about them on our show and you appreciate their financial support because without them, none of this would be possible. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. Thank you for being part of our world. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Seabags, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Marcy Booth of Booth Financial Services, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded in downtown Portland at the offices of Maine Magazine on 75 Market Street. It is produced by Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. For more information on our hosts, production team, Main Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at doctorlisa.org. Download and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial through iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. <laughs>